So we are looking in more detail at the creation of man. Um, we had the overview in chapter one of the creation as a whole, and now starting in two four, we're zeroing in on the part of the creation that's particularly important for the story of the book of Genesis, which is the creation of man. And so we have a man created and then uh, put in the garden. Uh, that there, there's there in Eden and some description of that. And uh, that's really where we've come to. So would somebody read verses 15 to 17? Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Okay, so these are kind of the uh, instructions that uh, the man has here. Uh, what's his work to be? To work in the garden. Yeah, he's supposed to care for the garden. Work did not begin after the fall. It began with the creation of man. After the fall, the work became difficult. <laughs> It was not hard work here. This was a generously provided for garden, but still he was to cultivate and keep it. And what was he supposed to eat? Yeah, he could eat as much as he wanted from any tree in the garden except except that one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God gave boundaries, and man was going to have to choose whether to do what God said or not. Now, you know, you might think, well, isn't it a shame God put that tree in the garden? If he had just skipped that tree, then everything would have been okay. But if you stop and think about it, if there is no way to disobey God, then you're forced to do his will. And God made man in his own image with freedom of choice. And so there, man had the option as to whether or not to obey God or not. Now he had abundant provision. God gave him all the trees except that one to eat from. He had all he wanted, all he could ever need. But he did have a rule. He had a boundary and he had the choice. Do what God says or not. Comments or questions? Just trying to rephrase what you had said. You said that if if there's no way to disobey God, then we're forced to obey Him, basically. Yes. Okay. That makes sense. I'm just trying to make yeah. sure I understand. I mean, you know, if if there is no rules, there's no way to sin. You know, I mean, if there was no law, there could be no transgression. That's right. Because you wouldn't have anything to transgress. Um, so the presence of a law makes it possible for man to choose to obey God out of his own free will and not just because he couldn't avoid it. Other questions or comments? Well, you remember how in chapter 1 uh, there are seven times that God evaluates the creation and each time, what does he say? It was good. And in the last time, what does he say? Very good. Very good. 
So this next section is a bit of a contrast because here's something that's not good. 18 to 25. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. From out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to, all, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Okay, so what's the one thing that was not good? Being alone. Yeah. It was not good for him to be by himself. And God was determined to make some uh, other creation that was compatible with him, that was suitable to him. Now you might wonder about the things God has made already. Would any of those be adequate? So he brings all the animals to Adam. What does Adam do with each of the animals? Names them. And after reviewing all the kinds of animals there were, none of them were suitable. Now God already knew that. He didn't have to go through that to find that out himself. But I suspect this was valuable for Adam. What will this show Adam? He's different, unique. Shows him he's not really the same as the animals. What else will it show him? What will it lead him to do? I think it'll lead him to appreciate the woman once she's made. You know, if you thought that, well, I probably got along fine with several different animals. You know, she's not really that special. You know, that, that'd be one thing. But he's, he's looked them all over. And he realizes that none of them are suitable to him. And so that makes her unique. She's in a very special uh, relationship. Now, you might pause for just a second. I think I'm right about this. But, I mean, what if you, what what if that happened today? What if uh, we all got amnesia or something and we forgot the names of the animals and God were to bring all those animals to us to name? Would uh, you like to be in that position? Do you see a problem with that today? Well, there's a lot, but that's not the problem I'm thinking about. Well, I suppose God made them come. Yeah, there are some animals I would not like to have come near me, you know, to name them. Some of them are quite dangerous. You know, I, I prefer cages, you know, in some cases. But I take it here that that was not a threat to Adam. You know, because remember how God created Adam? What did he give him? 
to man. All of creation was subject to man. So I am assuming in this at this point there was no danger that Adam was dominant over all the animals and that they were not a threat to him. That'd be that'd be really scary with a few animals today. Um, so God caused Adam to sleep, took one of his ribs, made woman, and brought her to the man. And Adam realizes she is made of the same stuff he is. She is really compatible with him. And I think what you see in verse 23 shows his, uh, you know, joy and contentment over uh, God making her for him. And the Lord right here establishes kind of the pattern that he wants to be followed from here on out. In verse 24, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now why would I say that this passage is the pattern that's to be followed from here on out as opposed to a verse that only applies to Adam and Eve? It's quoted, I mean, three more times in the New Testament. It's quoted in the New Testament and Jesus and the apostles considered it valid. Do you see something else that's kind of interesting about this uh, passage? Adam and Eve Eve didn't actually have a father and mother to leave. So clearly this is more establishing the pattern for the future. It's really not in that particular even a teaching for Adam and Eve. Uh, But it's a great passage because it really is God's will for marriage. And I think it's really helpful to us. You think about a man leaving his father and mother. What is that? Why is that important? What does that show? Independence? Yeah, independence. That's exactly right. That... When a couple marry, they are forming a new unit of society, they're forming a new family, and they are not any longer uh, subject to their own families, to their own parents. They are supposed to become independent. Now, maybe in our society, the idea of leaving father and mother it means a little different than it would have then. A lot of times they might have, you know, have greater proximity. It's very common for, you know, a couple to physically leave and go a long ways off today. Maybe not so much back then. But, but it's saying that they can't have that <coughs> continued relationship of dependence with their parents like they had. So... When my, when my kids got married, I did not say to them, well, look, if it doesn't work out, you know you can always come back home, or something like that. No. And I don't go to them and say, now, you're my son, you're my daughter, here's what you must do to obey me. You know, what happens when, uh, you know, holidays come around? And, you know, well, we have some family gathering planned. Well, what if one of my, my daughter-in-law or son-in-law has a family gathering plan? They know that we're happy to see them and we're, we love them, but they are determining what they will do. It's not up to us to run their relationship. 
So that's a really big step, and until we're mature enough to be independent, we really shouldn't get married. Comments and thoughts on that idea? We told our kids we broke their plates. Yes. <laughs> Good. The, the primary relationship in the home is the husband-wife relationship. The parent-child relationship is a temporary one. And where you see uh, parents uh, developing permanent relationship with their children, it, uh, it affects the marriage in an adverse way. It's a good point, and it's a good point for a family, because sometimes the parents, even when the children are smaller, get confused and end up trying to develop the stronger bond being the parent-child bond, and that shouldn't be. The best thing for the children is for the, for the stronger bond to be the husband-wife bond. That's the best thing for the children. Uh, and when you see parents who develop this unnatural bond with their children where they just can't live without their children's attention and, and all that sort of thing, you see children who end up being really complicated. You know, so this really shows that the husband-wife bond is the primary bond. That's a good point. Other thoughts? Right. Um, so what would you say, like in, in the New Testament, Colossians 3.20... When it says children be obedient to your parents in all things, uh, how long does that go? Are you saying once they get married, <coughs> they no longer have to obey their parents? Are you saying that's up to old they get married? Or? Well, I think this passage clearly would say that when they get married, they are no longer to obey their parents. Okay. That would be a problem anyway, yeah. wouldn't it? Yeah, so they're still honored. I mean, they don't have to, like, obey They are to life. honor their father and yeah. mother the rest of their life okay. in the sense that they are to respect them, right. okay. they're to show them honor, they're to take care of them if necessary, and so forth. Okay. But they certainly can't obey father and mother after they are married. Okay. And if they had to, what would you do in the situation where, you know, his parents say, you got to do it this way, and her parents say, you got to do it that way? <laughs> that would be a problem. Uh, so it's a good thing that he didn't require that. I suspect that marriage is not the only uh, way to get out of the necessity of obedience. I suspect okay. as children grow to be adults mm -hmm. that the relationship changes. Now, I might say in connection with that, <laughs> you know, um, dependence uh, implies some accountability. You know, if you're, you know, 30 years old mm -hmm. and you're living under your parents' roof and being supported by your parents, they probably got the right to say some things about what right. you do and don't do. Uh, I think that would be true even if somebody not related to me was living under my roof or was being supported by me. I think I'd have some say in some things. Uh, but... As, as a child becomes an adult and becomes truly independent and not dependent, then I think the requirement to obey is for children, okay. not adults. So there's just one avenue, that's just showing one, one of the avenues to show that now the necessity for obedience is no longer there. Yes, so. but espe exactly, especially in marriage. It's not just an obedience thing, it's, it's an emotional dependence thing as well. They've got to cut the apron strings, you know, because... It might not even be an obedience thing. But what, what happens if this happens? What if a couple gets married, and every time she gets her feelings hurt by her husband, 
she calls mommy on the phone and cries to mommy about how, you know, her husband's mistreating her. What would happen in that situation? The marriage bond would weaken and the relationship with her parents would strengthen. Yes, and what else would happen? What would mommy start thinking? Negatively about the son-in-law. Exactly. She's not going to like the son-in-law. Now, you know what's going to happen between that young couple? They're going to kiss and make up, hopefully. Maybe the next day. And everything's going to be fine. But mommy's not going to forget it. You know, she's still going to feel bad because this, this man is mistreating her little baby. So, emotionally, you can't maintain that same relationship. You've got to cut those ties. And there are some times that, you know, even if a young couple needs to talk to somebody about their marriage, it'd be better off if it wasn't some of the parents. You know, I remember, you know, several years ago working with a a young couple. And, you know, it was like all the families were Christians and all that. But it was terrible. Because he was going to his family, and she was going to her family, and the families were feuding as well as the couple, you know? It's like, whoa, this is not the right thing. And I think both families thought they were really trying to help the marriage, but it wasn't helping. Other thoughts? Verse 24, for this cause or for this reason, where where do you tie that back to? Do you go back to 20? Do you go, do you go that far back because of their suitableness for each other? Probably as good as anything I've got, but I don't have a good answer to that. Somebody somebody have an answer to that? That's a good question. I, mean, I would have probably first thought of just tying it to verse 23, that, you know, God's made this woman, that and, and but really... You know, that goes back to verse 20. She's the helper suitable for men, so maybe that's as good as anything. What about this idea of and be joined to his wife? You know, there is a strong bond in marriage. They are to be joined together. And we know from some passages in the New Testament, like Mark 10 and Matthew 19, that God really joins them together. God, this is a part of God's uh, will, is that when they get married, they are joined together. And how long is that joining together supposed to last? Yeah, until they die. One of them dies. Uh, That's supposed to be... Uh, a, a lifetime commitment, not a uh, you know five-year trial or five-month trial or whatever it's gotten to be these days. Um, that's God's intention. They are joined to each other by the Lord Himself, and we have no business messing with that bond. And you know, there's an exception to that in the sense that God allows divorce and remarriage if somebody divorces their mate for fornication. But clearly, the fornication is not what God wills. His intention is for this bond to last. So, what do we usually say when we get married? What's what's the marriage vow usually say? And what does it usually say before that? And maybe not so much anymore. Anymore, it can say anything. What was the traditional thing? In sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, you know, all that kind of stuff, until death do us part. 
But, you know, when people are making those vows, do they ever think about the, the, the options there? You know, they're always assuming for richer and not for poorer, and for health and not for sickness and all that. Uh, and I remember hearing a guy preach one time. I thought this was really good. He said, you know, if you, uh, you know, if you make a commitment like that, you know, where you're saying, I'm going to stick with you no matter what, you might ought to think before you make that about what that might involve. You know, that's a good idea. You know, making a lifetime commitment without really counting the cost, without really thinking about what that might get you into. You know, what would that mean? Uh, and he gave some examples that I thought were good. You can think of all kinds of things. Um, you know, he gave some extreme examples. But but what if, uh, what if a few months after the wedding, there's a car accident, and your wife becomes like a vegetable? can't perform physically, maybe loses her personality and her mental function and all that. What do you do then? You keep care of her. Keep your commitment. You made that commitment. You didn't make that commitment as long as she was physically fit and mentally fit and emotionally okay. You said until death parts you. She hadn't died yet. You are there for her. I remember you know, a long time ago, this was really kind of cool. Uh, there was an old man living in a nursing home with his wife. And uh, she was in a church, he was in a church where I, I was. And he was perfectly fine, uh, mentally, physically, and all that. But she was in the last stages of Alzheimer's or whatever. I mean, she was just not, couldn't do anything. Couldn't really communicate. And so he stayed in the nursing home, not because he needed to be in the nursing home, but so he could be with her. And he, it was just so cool seeing him with her and talking to him. Oh, he'd talk about how beautiful she was, how much he loved her. He'd be very tender with her. He wanted to be the one to give her the bath every day and to feed her and all that. And it's like, wow, that's really cool. I thought, that's cool thinking about her. I realized she didn't understand that. But isn't that cool to marry somebody and he's got that kind of commitment to you? that no matter what happens to you, he's going to be there for you. But when you marry somebody who makes that kind of commitment to you, you're making that kind of commitment to them. And it could, all kinds of things could happen. We don't know what might happen. But we ought to think about, well, what if that did happen? You know, and sometimes people just ought not to make that vow because they're not emotionally ready to say I'm willing to cleave I'm willing to to cling to this person until death if it meant that but it's really it's really awesome to be married to somebody who's made that kind of commitment to you I think it's worth it but I think we really need to think about it before we make it That's good. yeah right yeah, I don't. I was thinking of a very similar story. So I don't know if I've already heard you say that story before or not. But, but I was gonna. I don't use it very often. There, there was, you know, there's a very similar story, the same story. But I remember also adding that story. I guess, uh, um, whether it be that situation or a different one, exactly the same. But there was a. I guess the nurses there were like, you know, telling the man because the husband was always there. I guess at the, you know, at the nursing home, and the, the nurses said, or whatever they are, you know, they said, sir, you know, we. You know, it's wonderful to see you here all the time, but we can, you know, we can take care of her, and we do well with her, you know, and stuff. And he goes, well, I'm, I believe that, and I'm sure you do, but I, I made a vow that I was going to love this woman, take care of her the rest of my life. And so he 
explained, you know, they didn't look at it from that viewpoint. He, he explained to them, I, this is my wife. Like, you know, I want to be with her, you know, and I love her. And I, I don't know if that's the same yeah, story. Different story. Okay, different but story. yeah, it's very similar, yeah. very identical. So It's what ought to happen. Yeah, yeah. And the, so the, the nurses or whatever they are there was like, uh, you know, they just didn't look at it from that angle. So, yeah. But. I, I think that's interesting because in a situation like that, there are all kinds of pressures not to keep your vow. I remember a story about a man named Robert McQuilkin. He was a college uh, president of a of a college, and his wife developed Alzheimer's, and, and it was it was in. I mean, she just couldn't even function, and uh, uh, he was pressured to to do his job, and uh, they even suggested that uh, if uh, she could be put in a, a home somewhere and they they could take care of her just like this and he made he made a similar statement he said uh, uh, I, I made uh, I decided this 40 years ago when I made my vows to her and he he stepped down from being college president so that he could take care of his wife it, it's, it is great and, and I think we see those things and we think wow that's really cool but we need to think about that as the responsibility we're assuming when we get married. It is cool, but it's a responsibility. And you know, in a selfish society where everybody's wanting to just have the most fun they can and you know all the adventure they can, she might become a liability to you. you know? And it's easy to want to just well, uh, you know, she's not. And there'd be other kinds of them. Maybe maybe she's just not as pretty as she used to be, or maybe she's not as nice as she used to be, or you know, she's. I I I developed kind of a dislike for this, that, and the other thing about her. You know, people change. Sometimes we just don't know them before we get married, but sometimes people change too. We do change, and so maybe she wasn't quite like that before you married her, but now, whoa, I don't really like what she's become. That wasn't really the question, you know. I mean, we don't say, well, as long as I like you, you know, I'll stay with you. Uh, so I mean, I think I think just seeing that as God's original pattern and intention is a really helpful thing, Kevin. And also, in a way. How you're talking about we need to be devoted and all. In a way, we're supposed to be married to Christ, married to God. We're supposed to be following Him. We're supposed to be committed to Him. When we get baptized or when we devote our lives to Him, if we're sick, we need to be following Him. If we're dying, we need to be following Him. Till death, till we part. Excellent point, yes. I think many of these same concepts you can apply to our marriage with Christ. I think that's a helpful way to look at the passages that talk about that relationship we have with Jesus, just to think about what does that mean. And it certainly means that kind of commitment. And it certainly means leaving all other commitments and making Christ the commitment of our life. Yeah, right. Yeah, I know a few years ago, I dated a girl for two years, and I... And and, I don't know, I made myself start thinking certain questions, like, because I, I, we did it for like two years, I thought that it was going to go somewhere, but it, it fell apart. And, like, so, but I was thinking, like, I made myself think, you know, if she, if something happened and she became, like, a, like, a burnt, like, got seriously burned or something and became a burn victim or whatever they call that, I mean, and, and physically she was just totally distorted. And that would, I had to think, am I liking her for her looks or her personality, you know what I mean? And that, because if, if you're marrying someone and later down the road your spouse, gets burnt or something happens, you know, or a car wreck or something, and something's messed up, um, 
I mean, I, I don't know. I always think of things like that too. I want to make sure I don't. I'm not just attracted to her physically, you know, but making sure that there's that emotional connection and. Ultimately, connection. when we marry, we're making a commitment. Yeah. We are ultimately saying, I want to, within all of my power, do everything I can to care for you, to provide for you, to love you, to serve you. Mm-hmm. It's really not so much. That, well, you do all these things for me. Therefore, while you're doing that, I'll I like this. Mm-hmm. It's saying I want and I'm choosing to do this for you. Mm-hmm. It's hard to make those commitments, especially if we're selfish people, and if we're mostly thinking about what we like and what's fun for us. And then he says that they shall become one flesh, which I think includes the sexual relationship. God gave, he made man and woman sexual beings. That's a part of God's plan and purpose. And he intends for them to be together in that. That's uh, something that God wants as kind of a special uh, thing about marriage, that they share their bodies with each other. And... uh, so, so, right from the very beginning, God is clear about what he intends between Adam and Eve and about other couples after that. Uh, this, is, this is God. God nobody else invented marriage. This is God's idea. Thoughts and comments through 24. <coughs> I have one. Um... I read a book called The Mark of a Man by Elizabeth Elliot, and she talks a lot about uh, the difference between uh, masculinity and femininity and biblical masculinity and biblical femininity and what it means, the difference, the roles, and that sort of thing. And She goes back to Genesis a lot, and uh, one of the things that she pointed out from this passage was I thought was very interesting. She says that um, the woman was made for the man, the man, or the woman was made for the man, woman was made from the man, the woman was brought to the man, and the woman was named by the man. And I thought that that was interesting, and she just kind of showed how, you know, even even here, like, the husband is the head of the wife, and that sort of thing. But that kind of made me think, I don't know if I should pose this question now, but later, uh, in the curses in chapter 3, he said, you know, your desire shall be to your husband. And it's almost like, well, then beforehand, were, were they equal? Was there no head of the wife? Or... I don't know. That's just a question I had, but... We can talk more about Genesis 3 when we get there, but I think what you said is correct as far as God intended, even from the creation, for Adam to be the leader in the relationship. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2 says Adam was first created and then Eve, and he says that in connection with the leadership role of man. And then he points out in the fall that when the woman took the lead, disaster resulted. That is not how God intends for it to be. Now there's a lot of things to say about what God wants out of a man as a leader. You know, this is not supposed to be selfish leadership. You know, throw another log on the fire, you know, honey, I'm cold, you know, kind of a thing. It's supposed to be a protecting, caring, loving leadership. You know, he is responsible to take care of her. But it's still leadership. He's still head. And that does mean some things about him 
and who he is and the kind of person that he is. And that, that's just, I think there is something about how God made man and women that we are constituted to function in a certain way, and when we don't function that way, it's kind of like putting a round peg in a square hole. It doesn't work as well. Thoughts and comments? Now verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They uh, have no sin. They have nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to cover themselves up for. After sin, they are ashamed. They want to hide from God and feel the need to, in some senses, even hide from each other. Uh, but but everything's pure. Everything's innocent uh, at this point in time. Now, interestingly, the word for naked here and the word for crafty in 3.1 are sound-alike words, a rum and a rum. And so there's kind of a play on the naked and the crafty. I don't know what to make out of that, but that is, that is a fact, at least. All right, thoughts and comments that you have uh, on chapter 2. All right, well, if it weren't for Genesis chapter 3, we wouldn't have the rest of the Bible. You know, I guess that's kind of axiomatic, but think about it. You know, uh, pretty much uh, Genesis 1 and 2 are the only chapters in the Bible that there is not sin, there's not Satan. You know, everything is wonderful in Genesis 1 and 2. There's no conflict, there's no anything. And, uh, 